Uh, this came out of our garden out front uh, in our flower bed, and I want to thank the the unsolicited and unnamed people who sacrificially come in the heat of the day, and you know who you are, and I know who you are, but we're not going to single you out because then you would you will be robbed of your reward in heaven. So, uh, and we have some people who commit to coming in the heat and pulling out the weeds and and making our grounds beautiful because we want to reflect the glory of God in our community and we want to uh, tell our community how much we love them and love the Lord by making our our, our grounds out there as pretty as possible uh, without too much expense. And one of these flowers came out of there and it's going to help me with my illustration today. And I wonder if you've ever played this this little game. It's she loves me or she loves me not. How many of you have played that? Come on. You're showing your age, okay? And I saw even some younger adults out there, so that, that's, that's dating you. Okay, any of you played this game? Teenagers? See, you have? You're not a teenager, April. Okay? <laughs> Just shows you that's a generational thing. Well, your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have a little game that we play, and, and the reason we do this is because we want to know that if our affections for someone are going to be returned. You know, we get a crush in elementary school on some little girl, and, or, or some little girl gets one on some little boy, and it's mostly the boys chasing the girls, but, and it never stops, does it, guys? That's what I thought. And so, and so we want to know... Do they love me or do they love me not? And so you play this game and you take a little flower like this and you start, uh, do they, does she love me? Does she love me not? Does she love me? Does she love me not? Does she love me? Does she love me not? Does she love me? Does she love me not? Does she love me? Does she love me not? Does she love me? Wow, I looked out. Which means that my affections are going to be returned because I love her and she loves me. And we think that we know when we're young what love is all about, don't we? And then we get married. And our perception of love changes, doesn't it? <clears throat> Somewhere about uh, 10 minutes after the honeymoon. No, I'm just kidding. But we want to know when we love someone, are they going to love me back? I don't care if you're third grade or 12th grade or even some senior adults out here who are single. We want to know, do they love me as much as I love them? Jesus is about to ask Simon Peter a question. And he's not going to ask the question because he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. But he's asking the question, Simon Peter, do you love me? And the reason he's asking Simon Peter this question is because he wants Simon Peter to search his heart, to search the depth of his affections for Jesus, and determine does, does he love him as much as Jesus deserves to be loved and even as much as Jesus demands. Do you really love me? Simon Peter, more than these? Do you love me more than these? You see, there, there are things in our lives that are, that are competitors in our love for Jesus. Things. These things. Do you love me more than these things? 
And as a result of these competitors in our lives, we have a tendency, I think, from time to time to get distracted, to be detoured, or to let our love for Jesus wane or decrease and allow our love for these other things to supersede our love for him. And as a result of that, our love for him then decreases and it stops being the primary purpose of our lives in loving him as he deserves to be loved. A man came to him one time and said, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love him with your all. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to love our spouses or our children or our parents even. I know that's a stretch. but And, and to love even someone else of the opposite sex and to have one of those, you know, moments. But it means that we're supposed to love him more than anything and anyone else. Now, I would, I, would, I would dare to say that everyone in this room, more than likely, would claim to love Jesus. Some of you don't know him, and yet you still claim to love him. But my question as we start this study is, do you love him more than these? Do you love him more than anything and more than anyone else in your life? Be honest, Simon Peter, he asks him. Not just what you claim with your lips or even believe you want to believe in your mind, but search the depths of your soul and come to grips with the reality of the lack of love for me that you have and confess, please, that you don't love me as you should and that there's room for growth in the development of this love that you claim to have for me. So let's look at the text, and let's ask and then answer the question, how do we restore our love for Christ? This, in essence, is something I think that all of us here today must come to grips with. Our love is not what it ought to be. How do I return then back to my first love? How do I come back to loving him the way he deserves, and I think the way he demands that his disciples love him? The first principle is simply this. I need to rest in my salvation. I need to rest in my salvation. Now, if you take a look at the text that uh, Pastor Matt read earlier, we learn that just following what we studied last Sunday, they're around a campfire. They have had a campfire meal unlike any meal they have ever eaten, served by the hands of God himself, Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you like to have a chef prepare your meal like that? Jesus, God in the flesh, prepared a meal and then served it to you. And I'm convinced that more than likely it was the best meal they had ever partaken of in their lives. In the presence of Jesus, whom they thought was dead just a few days ago, now is raised from the dead and served them at, I mean, what a better scenario than that. They're on a, on a shore by the sea in Galilee, and the sun is rising, and they're eating and partaking and fellowshipping and communing, and there's laughter and there's sharing, and there's community and there's communion, and all of those wonderful vibes are going on, kind of like Brother Denny's Sunday school class this morning that shared, you didn't invite us, the rest of us there, thank you very much, but you know, it's one of those times when you're just, you're just man, it's wonderful. You want to take a snapshot of it to remind yourself of what it was like, but even the snapshot more than likely is not going to capture the, the, the awesomeness of this, of this encounter. 
And then it says, following the meal. Following the meal. Now some, as I study this text, want us to believe that Jesus and Simon Peter went off by themselves. And this was a conversation that happened between Jesus and Simon Peter. But I'm convinced it's a conversation that happened between Jesus and Simon Peter, but in the presence of the other disciples. Because the Bible says, then Jesus said to Simon... There's no indication that Jesus and Simon got up from the fireplace and, or the, the, the fire pit with the coal and, and the fish and the bread and all of that and got up and walked off. I think Jesus now turns his attention to Simon Peter and he's talking to Simon Peter and it says, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, or said to Peter, son of John. He just turns him and addresses him. Now, I don't know about you, but How would you like for Jesus to single you out here today and ask you to stand up and then poke his finger in your your sin or your failure or your shortcoming so that all of us here could see it and know exactly what your problem is? We wouldn't like that. We don't. We like it hidden and unexposed and we want to pretend and we put on masks and we put on facades and we play games when we come into the place of worship. And Jesus is about to strip away this facade or this mask, this game that he has been playing. Because, you see, remember it was Simon Peter who suggested they go fishing rather than wait on Jesus. And the rest followed him. He led them out to sea, and they worked all night and caught absolutely nothing. Peter has not only failed then, but he has failed many other times before then. I mean, if there's anything like Simon Peter, he has failed numerous times. And most of us in this room can honestly, if there's ever a disciple that we could relate to, it's Simon Peter, because we're, we, like Simon Peter, are well aware of our failures, our shortcomings. We, we put our foot in our mouth. We step before we, should, before we look. We speak when we should be silent. We, we make choices that, that, that end up in failure and disaster, and we're well aware of our shortcomings and our sins. And, and, and it's Simon Peter here now who Jesus turns to. It's a very public address, and it's very personal. Jesus says to Simon, he singles him out of the other 11 disciples who were there. I'm convinced that all the 11 disciples are now there by the shore having breakfast with Jesus, not the seven that just went fishing. And he says, Simon Peter, son of John. He calls him by this very unusual name. Why does he call him by this name? I'm convinced, as I've studied it this week, that the reason why he called him by this name is that he is taking Simon Peter back to his conversion experience recorded in John chapter 1. Back where Nathaniel was with John the Baptist, and he said, look, there goes the Lamb of God. And they follow Jesus, and they spend the day with Jesus. And Andrew with, with John, they, they learn that, uh, that he is the Messiah. And then Andrew does the most wonderful thing. He seeks out his brother, Simon Peter, and he says, Peter, you're not going to believe it. We have found the Messiah. Let me take you to him. And upon introducing him to Jesus, Jesus gives him a new name, Cephas, which means Peter, which also means rock. 
He gives him a new name, which indicates to us in John 1 that Simon Peter became a full-fledged believer that Jesus was the Messiah and put his trust and his faith in him as his Savior. He believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That was his conversion experience in John chapter 1. And Jesus is taking him back to that for the primary reason of helping Simon Peter now understand and identify, just because you have failed me, Simon Peter, over and over again, your salvation is still secure. You have not lost your relationship with me. And this became a lesson that Simon Peter not only remembered, but one he records and he admonishes others to remember in a passage found in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Let me read to you what he said. As he's writing in his first letter, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is, notice this, it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's taken Simon Peter back to his conversion experience. He said, you did nothing to save you. I named you after your salvation, Peter Cephas, the rock. And there's no way in the world, despite of all of your failure, that you will ever lose that conversion experience and be kept out of the kingdom of God. Now, I know that's a dangerous doctrine because it helps us somehow come to the conclusion that no matter how I live, no matter what I do, I will never lose my salvation, so therefore it doesn't matter how I live, but it does. But it's great to know that because I did nothing to save myself and I can do nothing to keep my salvation, it also helps me understand that in my humanity, in my frailness, in my weakness, and even in my sin, I do nothing to lose my salvation. Because once I am saved, I am eternally destined and my salvation is secure and my relationship with Jesus is guaranteed because I have always understood from the basis of my conversion experience that he's a God not only of mercy, but he is a God of grace. For salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. It's by what? The grace that's found through faith in Jesus. And it helps us understand that in spite of your failure, I want you to understand today, you may have failed him miserably. Your affections and your passions and your thoughts and your choices may have taken you down the path of the prodigal son. And in spite of where the prodigal son wound up in the pig pen with the pigs, when he suddenly realized, I've got a dad, I need to go see him, that, that his name never changed. My dad gave me his name when I was born, Charles Edward Boswell. And no matter what I can do, I can or not do or fail to do, I can never change my name. I can, but it doesn't change who my dad is. And when he, he's saying to Simon Peter, when, I, when your faith in me gave you new birth and new life and new hope, and a salvation and conversion experience that was settled, it was secure, and it's great to know 
that I'm saved by grace through faith, in that it is not of myself, but it's a gift of God. In your failure, in the darkness of that failure, in, in the struggle of, and the search for, and sometimes the devil whispers in our ear, if you were really saved, you wouldn't have done that. You can say back to him what Peter wrote. My salvation isn't secure based upon what I do or fail to do. It's secure in my faith in Jesus who died on the cross for my sin and took my sin upon him on that cross. And now because of that, I have been set free. Your failure doesn't mean you have to stay a failure. And your love, let me tell you something, your love will grow cold for Jesus from time to time. mountaintop the whole time you know why you're a you're a a, just a sinner saved by grace and you're going to be impetuous and you're going to think wrong thoughts and look in wrong directions and you're going to do wrong things and you're going to wind up in the midst of all of that darkness and despair you know if I was am I really saved because you're going to ask yourself that and you're going to hear the whisper of the enemy and maybe the whisper from others But it's great to know that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And he wants Simon Peter to go back to that conversion experience. And say, Simon Peter, even though you failed me, I still love you. You're still mine. I am still yours. And you're still a disciple. Number two, I need to then reflect on my condition. Just because I'm a disciple doesn't mean I'm always going to love him the way I should and walk the way I should and live the way I should and think the way I should and feel the way I should and make the right kind of choices. And so there are times as I follow Jesus, I need to reflect on my spiritual condition to assess whether or not I need to move toward him. Notice, he then says, Jesus said to Simon, said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Then in 16, he says, do you love me? And again, he says, do you love me? He asked him three times, do you love me? Three times, do you love me? Now, the first time he says, do you agape me? Do you love me with this kind of love? Do you love me with the highest, the greatest kind of love? Do you love me 100% of yourself? 100%. It's the first question. Verse 15, do you love me 100%? Second time, he asked him, do you love me 100%? And the third question is, do you love me, do you phileo me, do you love me less than 100%? And let's put it in perspective. Jesus first asked him two times, do you love me 100%? And then the second, third time he asked him, do you love me maybe 50%? Do you love me at least 50%? You've admitted twice now that you don't love me 100%. 
And, and, and Simon Peter said, I don't, I don't really love you 100%. I love you 50%. He said it twice. And then the third time, Jesus said, then finally he said, okay, then do you love me at least 50%? You, you claim to love me 50%. Do you really love me 50%? And the Bible says that Simon Peter, when he heard that, was grieved in his heart. Because maybe that wasn't really quite exactly true. Maybe. And he, he's not asking because Jesus doesn't know the answer to the question. He knows Simon Peter's condition. He's asking because he wants Simon Peter to look in a reflective mirror and see the genuine condition of his heart. It's a condition that Simon Peter was forced to look at. And as he dug deep into his soul, he recognized and realized, I don't love Jesus as much as I... Bleh. I mean, there, I mean, he just recently said, hey, Jesus, I'll die for you. When Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me three times. When shortly after that, he was by another fire in another camp place, another camp out, surrounded by the enemies of Jesus, and he denied Jesus three times, and he went and he wept. Do you know that, that Paul says in Corinthians that, that Jesus sought Simon Peter out individually, personally, because he knew that Simon Peter was struggling with conviction of having denied Jesus three times, and Simon Peter got a special visitation from Jesus after he rose from the dead that the other disciples didn't, didn't receive because he needed to go bring Simon Peter back to faith in himself, in Jesus, not himself, but to renew his faith in Jesus. And now again, we see Jesus coming back and redeeming and rescuing and restoring Simon Peter's love back to Jesus, but he's doing it in a very deliberate way by asking him to examine his heart and determine what his condition might be. Jesus is, 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 is helping Simon Peter search his heart and to reflect honestly, honestly what's his condition. And Simon Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.14, he learned this lesson. He said, as obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy if I am holy. He recognized that there are some passions that often we struggle with that are not in conformity with our passions to Jesus. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as fellow disciples of Jesus on this journey of faith and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war in your soul. He recognizes that there's a war, there's a struggle going on deep within inside of us all who follow Jesus and who desire to be his disciple. There's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And honestly, the flesh wins out, doesn't it? Do you love me more than these worldly things? The love of the world sometimes crowds out our love for Jesus. The love of, of family, the love of finances, the love of, and we're going to get to that love in a minute. And if we're not careful... Our love for Jesus can diminish because our love for other things increases, and there's a constant battle between the spirit and the flesh. And Simon Peter recognized that. He wrote about that, and you and I need to come to terms with that because unless we have lived 100% for him, totally, completely, you know, undefiled by the world and our passions, but, but the reality is that none of us have ever lived there for very long, have we?
And so we need to reflect on the condition of our love for him. Once we reflect on that condition, we must then repent of our transgression. It's interesting that he says then in verse 15, Simon Peter responds to the question, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him in verse 16, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. That's the second response to the second question. And a third time we see in verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. The first time Jesus said, Do you agape me? Do you love me 100%? He said, No, Lord, I love you 50%. 50%. I phileo you. The second time Jesus then comes back again and said, do you love me 100%? It's almost like Jesus didn't hear what he said. He said, no, Lord, I love you 50%. And the third time Jesus then comes back and said, okay, you don't love me this way. You've admitted you don't love me 100%. Then Simon Peter, do you love me 50%? And upon asking that question, the Bible says that Simon Peter was grieved in his spirit, in his heart, because Jesus questioned his love, his 50% love, and he was grieved in his heart. But notice then Peter's answer. He says yes to the question. Yes, I love you. I mean, if you were asked to to be asked that question today, every one of us in here, I guarantee every one of us, or well, if 99.9% of us say, do you love Jesus? We say, yes, I love Jesus. Yes, yes. Anybody in here say, yes, I love Jesus. If you love Jesus, raise your hand. All right, look at people who don't have their hand raised and tell them about Jesus, all right? We all love Jesus. Yes. And if he were to ask you today, do you love me? You would say, yes, I love you, Jesus. Yes. And Jesus said, yes, I love you. Yes. Three times he says, yes. And then notice the acknowledgement. He calls him Lord. You are sovereign over my life. I have committed and dedicated my life to following you and to loving you as the Lord, as the master, as my Savior. I am, I am acknowledging that you are Lord. You are sovereign into my life. Yes, sovereign Lord. You know, notice he is appealing to the knowledge of Jesus. He knows that Jesus, being the Son of God, knows everything. Did you hear what I just said? He knows everything. I don't like that very much. Do you? He knows everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Not a thought that you think, not an emotion that you feel, not an act that you do. You can do it in a cubicle somewhere in a distant place in the dark thinking no one sees you, but he is there. He knows your thoughts. He knows your emotions. He knows your hearts. He knows your passions. He knows your desires. He knows everything about you. You cannot, we cannot, I cannot, you cannot, we cannot hide from him anything. That's why some people don't come to church. Really? Yeah. They come in here and they get convicted of something. Yeah. I don't want to, church ought to make me feel good. Ought to, when I come in the presence of Jesus, I want to feel good. I want you to tell me how good I am, how wonderful I am, how great I am, how everything's possible, and there's no mention of sin. You know a church like that? I do. There's several on television right now, and several in our community. 
That's why churches can, can uh, embrace certain doctrinal beliefs that are conflicting with Scripture about lifestyles against Scripture and, and call and say, we're, we're gathering for church to worship God, but we don't want to feel any conviction about our lifestyle choices, or our thoughts, or our passions, or anything. Sometimes people go out and say, well, you really stepped on our toes today, preacher. I hope I didn't step on anybody's toe. I hope the Holy Spirit steps on your heart. And when he does, notice he knows everything. And because he knows everything, Simon Peter says, I love you. But notice he says, he doesn't say, I agape you. I phileo you. I don't love you 100%. I love you down here. You know all things. I would be a hypocrite, and, and I'd be what Forrest Gump's mama said, stupid is as stupid does. If I'm standing in front of Jesus, and I know that he knows my heart condition and my thoughts and my passions and my, all everything happened Monday through Saturday night, and even this morning when I got up and came to church, and I'm now in the presence of Jesus, he said, do you love me? And I said, Yes, I don't love you 100%, but I love you somewhere down here. Because I know you know all things. I do love you, but I don't love you like I should. And then notice then the anguish of Simon Peter's heart. It says here that he was grieved. Does it grieve your heart that you don't love Jesus the way you should? I'll be honest with you, sometimes I don't give a flip. And I'm the pastor. And what are we paying you for then? Well, you ain't paying me to love Jesus. You're paying me to put up with the sheep. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Because I'm so busy in my world, doing my thing, involved in my little stuff, And I can spiritualize it and say it's for the kingdom. I'm the pastor. It's for the church. It's for the people. It's for him. It's for her. It's for them. It's for this family. And I get so wrapped up in everything that, that, that that it's no longer about Jesus. It's all about whatever. And I finally have to come to dingy. I have to come back around and say, this isn't right. Aren't you like that? Come on. Yeah. Uh, It's no different for me than it is for you. And when I recognize that my condition isn't what it ought to be, I need to repent. You don't work with me Monday through Friday. Ask Kip sometimes. Sometimes I'm not very spiritual. Well, we all know that, but I'm just kidding. Kip's our, our maintenance minister in our church and does a very fine job. One of these days, we're going to correct the heat in here. As soon as we get some of the stuff fixed, it takes a while. We're on a, on a list. But anyway, to repent. To repent. He, he knew something about repentance. In 1 Peter 2, 24, he said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is our shepherd. 
And, and there's a beautiful illustration where he talks about the straying sheep and he leaves the 99 to go after the one and he brings him back and restores him back into the fold, back into the fellowship, back into relationship, not only with the shepherd, but with the other sheep. And there are times when he comes to redeem us and to rescue us, to bring us back into the fold so that we, through repentance, can, can be reconciled with him as we were at salvation. Just because you came to faith in Jesus and were reconciled to the Father through the Son and your sins have been forgiven and now you're walking in a relationship and he, you call him Father, he's your Abba, he's your Daddy, and you're walking in him. And when you stray as his sheep, one of his flock, he's going to come after you. And when he does, we need to repent of our transgression. And then once we repent, notice we need to then return to our commission. That's a fourth and final step, to return, to return. He said to him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. The word lambs means young lambs. And then he said to him a second time, then tend my sheep, gather them together and tend to them, care for them, feed them. And then he said to him a third time, feed my sheep. Notice, who do the sheep belong to? Who? To Jesus. Who do you belong to? To Jesus. You're a sheep. <laughs> Children go home today and just hang out and pretend like you're sheep. Get all fours and walk around your house. <laughs> you're welcome. Send them to my house. It's okay. I might get on the floor with them and do the same thing. My wife said that we had three children. She said she had four. I was the fourth anyway. I loved having kids. It was a childhood I never had. My sheep. Who does all this belong to? Who do we belong to? We're his. This is not my church. This is not my flock. It drives me nuts when I hear pastors at conventions talk about my church, my people, my flock. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. We're just stewards of what he's entrusted us with. And someday, someday, not in the near future, you'll have another shepherd standing here and you'll still be his. Because one of these days, I will retire, as John Click did after 27 years. I've only been here nine, so I've got a few more years left. Feed my sheep. What's he doing? He's calling Simon Peter back to the purpose for which he was created. He says, Simon Peter, I chose you, I called you, you responded to my call, you left everything to follow me, I told you I'd make you a fisher of men, I commissioned you, I have trained you, I have equipped you, I have empowered you, now you need to come back to fulfill the purpose for which I called you. I didn't, I didn't call you to fish, I called you to fish for men. 
I, I chose you, I called you, I equipped you, I empowered you, I commissioned you to fulfill the purpose for which I created you. And when I pursued you on that beach that day and you responded to my invitation, I am, I am now asking you to be restored back to the intent, the purpose for which you were created. And that is to tend, to feed, to gather my flock. Because there are, there are those who are not yet of my flock that you must go out and witness to and bring into the fold. And then those that are in the fold, then you need to tend them, feed them, protect them, guard them as a faithful shepherd so that I, through your obedience, can fulfill my plan and my purpose for your life. What he's saying here is that once we repent and we come back to Jesus and we restore our love for him, the end result is obedience. It's obedience. We don't return back to disobedience. We return back to obedience. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. You're being disobedient because your love for him isn't what it should be. Because when your love for him as it should be, then your choices and your thoughts and your passions and your drives and your desires, that which drives your life will be your purpose and you'll fulfill it. What drives your life today? You know, a lot of people are driven by a lot of different things. What drives your life? He's bringing Simon Peter back, and he's saying, let me drive your life. Let me be the purpose that drives your life. What drives your life? To be quite honest with you, I think some people are driven by, by survival. If I can just survive, that's a really sad way to live. There are some that are driven by success. If I could just be successful, and I'm driven by success, my quest to succeed, to be successful, however that's defined. To me, you define success with one word. It's called obedience. As somebody asked me here recently, he said, define me or tell me how successful Emmanuel is. And I thought, and how successful am I? And I said, well, it's, it's about being obedient. It's, how do you define success? One word, obedience. That's the only way to, to define success, is to be obedient. Why? Because my love for him drives my obedience. The guy who put on his truck this warning to those who would see him coming by, he said, this truck is driven by a blind man. He sold Venetian blinds. And people would get out of his way when they saw that sign driven by a blind man. And it always freaked him out when he saw people drive by going. And he's just driving like this, you know. How does a blind man drive? One of these days you're going to be able to drive blind because you're going to be able to have one of those cars that drive themselves. It's coming. Are you driving blindsided? being driven by the wrong purpose, by the wrong objective, by the wrong motive, and by the wrong passion. He asks us today as we close, do you love me 100%? And, and, and what do you say? Don't, don't answer out loud. What's your response?
today. He asks you, ask me, do you love me 100%? With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Do you love me with your all? And if you do, you are fulfilling his purpose, following his directive. You are loving him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And if you love him any less than that, you must recognize that your love isn't what it should be. You must repent of the lack of love that he demands and he deserves. And you must repent of that love and do whatever you can in your life to remove whatever is there that is a hindrance to him. Do you love me? Do you love him more than anything? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have today to be challenged by this passage. I know I was and I hope we all were today as we come to terms with the reality of where we are spiritually. And honestly, we must all, when we hear you ask us the question, do you love me? We must all honestly admit we don't love you a hundred percent. And all of us today are at different levels of our love for you. Some of us today say, you know what? I, I'm delusional. I think I love you 99.9%. Lord, convict us if that's our response. Because we all know in here that's not reality. All of us are sitting around, not a campfire, but a worship service in your presence today. And we hear the convicting questions you asked Simon Peter. Do you love me more than these? And we must honestly confess that there are these, there are things that have crowded out our passions, our affections, our fellowship, our devotion, our surrender, our love for you. Where are you today? Hundred percent, eighty percent, sixty percent, forty percent, twenty percent. What needs to happen today to make that different? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. And he gave 100% for you. He gave his best offering. He gave his son Jesus. And if you don't know this love that we've talked about and described today, we invite you to come to know him personally, intimately, through faith in him. Like Simon Peter, a conversion experience where you turn from your sin and turn from yourself and turn to Jesus and place your faith and trust in him. Have you made that decision today? I'm convinced there are many people who claim to love him, yet they don't love him because they've never come to know him. It's more than an intellectual decision. It's a heart transformation. Do you have that relationship today? You claim to love him. Are you walking in obedience to him? Are there things, people, relationships, stuff that's robbing your affections for Jesus. Isn't it time that we as his disciples hear the words of Jesus? 
the words that he spoke to Simon Peter, love me with your own breath. In a moment as we stand and sing, our pastors are here. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you about that decision. Or if you'd just like to come and kneel and pray, we invite you to come. Whatever decision God places upon your heart. If you would like to, you can put that on a little tear out inside of your worship guide and put it in the offering plate. And we'd love to pray with you about your decision. Whatever God is leading you to do today, we ask you to do it. God, be Lord in our decision time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And as we sing, as God leads, we invite you to come.